2009, December 2nd. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 44, The Future of Life in the Solar System. Okay, so, we spent the last few weeks talking about the nature of life in the universe. We started by looking at life on the Earth, life in the solar system, and finally life and the possibilities of life around other stars. But today I want to turn to the last few lectures of the course and we're going to begin to address the question of death in the universe, or more precisely, to look at the limits and ends of life. Today, we want to focus on our own solar system and ask, what are the limits of life in the solar system? Will there be a time when the solar system is simply uninhabitable, when the Earth is no longer a habitable place for us? And ask, how would that come about, and what this tells us about the future of life in our own solar system? So today's lecture is, of course, entitled, The Future of Life in the Solar System. We know that today the sun is sh steadily shining as a middle-aged main-sequence star, and has been doing so for about five billion years. We know that in the past the sun was cooler and fainter, and it's been getting steadily brighter and hotter as it ages. About five or six billion years from now, the hydrogen is going to run out. And when it runs out, the sun is going to go through a series of evolutionary changes through red giant phases, horizontal branch, asymptotic giant branch, eventually ending up as a white dwarf. During all those periods, the sun is going to change its luminosity dramatically. As a consequence, as you recall from earlier, earlier lectures, the habitable zone around a star is de determined primarily by the luminosity of that star. So not surprisingly, as the star sun gets hotter and brighter over the course of its main sequence lifetime, the habitable zone has been steadily moving outwards. And so we're going to see a number of consequences for the Earth. In particular, as the habitable zone moves out away from the sun as it gets brighter, eventually it's going to reach the point where the solar radiation is going to cause a runaway greenhouse effect on the Earth, effectively ending life on the surface. Subsequent evolution of the sun through red giant is going to even more greatly increase the luminosity of solar radiation on the Earth, and eventually by the red giant phase will essentially render the Earth airless and lifeless. Finally, the sun is going to end itself its life as a white dwarf star, and we're going to see that in those final phases of a white dwarf, the final end state of the Earth, after all the final evolution of the Sun is done, will be a very cold, frozen planet orbiting a fading white dwarf star. So not exactly a cheery topic to go through today, but we should look very carefully at what is it that, that our understanding of stellar evolution, our understanding of the nature of life, or the history of the Earth, bring these ideas together and ask, what is the end of the solar system going to be like? What is the future of life in the solar system? So let's just dive right in. We know that today the Sun is a main sequence star, and it's been, been so for about four and a half billion years. So rather than beginning today, let's go into the past just after formation about four and a half billion years ago. The Sun was born out of a massive cloud of in interstellar gas. That interstellar gas cloud collapsed into a rotating disk with the Sun forming at the center and the planetary system, our solar system, forming out of the leftover material in that rotating disk. We can actually calculate what the stages of evolution of the Sun are, even though it's a vastly long process, because we have advanced computer models of the interior physics of the Sun. We know how nuclear physics work, we know how gas physics works, and we have a large basis of observations of other stars that tells us what stars like the Sun are like at various phases of their evolution. So a lot of the numbers I'm going to give you for the luminosity, the radius, and temperature of the Sun, for the time scales involved, are actually known to pretty high accuracy. The level of models that we have available to us today are extremely accurate and can produce, reproduce a lot of the observations of the interior of the Sun, learn from things like helioseismology, 
and also give very good correspondences to sun-like stars that are in various phases of their life that we see when we observe the known universe. In particular, the models that I'm going to be referring to for some of the time scales and numbers come from our very own Mark Pinsonow here at The Ohio State University, who's probably one of the world's leaders in this area right now and who has one of the world's most state-of-the-art solar evolution models. So let's begin at the beginning. The sun took about 50 million years on its collapse from a gas cloud to finally reaching the main sequence. It reached the main sequence when it got all of its energy needs from nuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium in its core. When it reached that point of 100% fusion energy return, we say that it has reached the main sequence. That occurred about 4.5 billion years ago. If we look at what the properties of that brand fresh new sun was right as, as it alighted on the main sequence, we find that the sun was in fact a little bit fainter, a little bit smaller in radius, and a little bit cooler than it is today. To use specific numbers, the sun was about 70% as luminous as it is today. It was about 89-90% of its radius, a little bit smaller, and it was actually a little bit cooler, about 5600 degrees Kelvin, whereas today in round numbers it's about 5800 degrees Kelvin. So not a big difference in temperature. But all those factors together means the sun looked a little bit fainter, a little bit redder, but not much than it would be if we looked out on the sky today. Now the sun is getting most of its energy in the main sequence phase, in fact it's getting 100% of its energy in the main sequence phase by fusing hydrogen into helium deep in its core. The helium that it produces is a byproduct, it's an ash, and it's not hot enough in the core yet for helium fusion to occur. That's not going to happen until the temperature gets up to about 600 million degrees Kelvin, but at this stage in the sun's life, the temperature is only about 12 million degrees Kelvin, so it's got a long ways to go. So the helium has nothing to do but settle into the center as a kind of ash. As it does begin to, to settle down in the center, it changes the composition of the core. As it changes the composition of the core, the sun slowly readjusts its structure to, to accommodate that change in the physical properties there. And one of the consequences of that sort of accommodation of this accumulation of ash in the core is that the sun will slowly get a little bit hotter and a little bit brighter as it ages. Now this is a very slow process. It's going to take about 10 billion years. In fact, we can compute how long the sun can, can continue to shine via hydrogen fusion to helium in the core. We've done that problem in class. It's approximately 10 billion years for a star the size, the mass and composition of the sun. So right now, the sun is actually growing slightly hotter, slightly brighter, but it's really small. On human timescales, we can't tell. We actually don't have the technology to, to notice that because there are other changes that, that mask it. But if you can look on geological timescales, we will see a steady increase in the brightness of the sun from the distant past to the present. Now, to put some numbers on this, I've drawn a picture up here on the screen. This is a, a schematic view of the solar system. The sun is drawn in the center as a little yellow dot. You can probably barely see that from the back of the room or even the front of the room, and that's because I've even had to make the sun big enough to fit on a single pixel on the screen is actually bigger than it actually is in scale up here with the actual solar system. We see the orbit of the four inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And then over here on the left-hand side of the screen, you see this partial arc running from top to bottom. That's the orbit of Jupiter out at about five astronomical units. I'm going to use this little background cartoon to illustrate what the conditions are like in the solar system as the sun goes through various of its phases. Now, in particular, in addition to drawing the orbits of the four inner planets in Jupiter, I've drawn this green band. You see right here where the Earth is sitting very much a little bit off-center of that band. 
that green band is the habitable zone for the sun. Not the habitable zone for today, but the habitable zone, <laughs> habitable zone defined by the properties of the sun at the particular time that we're talking about it. So here, the sun is at the its earliest phase, it's just alighted on the main sequence, its luminosity is 70% the luminosity of the sun. So we know from our previous discussions that the habitable zone around a, a lower luminosity star than the sun will be slightly closer to the star and slightly narrower. Now the habitable zone that I'm going to be portraying on all of these pictures is the so-called conservative habitable zone we established a couple of, of weeks ago for the for the sun. It's defined by the work of James Casting and his, and, his, and his collaborators. And we'll say a little bit more about kind of what's at some of the limits there as, as we move along. But here it is. The sun is 70% brighter. The habitable zone is come in towards the sun a little bit. The, it's just outside the orbit of Venus, so Venus and Mercury are inside the inner edge of the habitable zone and, not surprisingly, would likely be uninhabitable on relatively long timescales. The Earth is smack in the middle and Mars is well outside. Now, it could be that Mars, in fact, would be technically habitable during this period, or at least during the next billion years or so, because Mars, early on in its history, we think, had a fairly heavy atmosphere, and that would lead to an enhanced greenhouse effect, which would actually allow, and we think, in fact, allowed for substantial amounts of liquid water on the surface of Mars during the first billion years or so. So that's just a reminder that this idea about the habitable zone is, in many ways, very parochially defined. Right? We define it in terms of stable liquid surface water on an Earth-sized planet with an Earth-like atmosphere. Clearly, we can have all kinds of variations on that theme. Heavier greenhouse can allow you to have a, a uh, habitable zone, which is actually technically further outside of the habitable zone. A smaller mass planet would have a, a, we could be technically habitable, but the conditions might not be right for it and so forth. So for the sake of this particular lecture, we're referring to essentially an Earth-like planet habitable zone. And remember, there are all these other details about planet size, greenhouse effect that come into play. Just keep those, those ideas back in your mind. So here we are. We're at a period about four and a half billion years ago, up to about four billion years ago. So this is the Hadean eon here on Earth. The Earth is firmly inside of its habitable zone. And in fact, if we were to look at what the surface of the Earth would look like during this period, it might look something like this cartoon, computer graphic drawing of the Earth's surface during the late Hadean Eon. The last epoch of, of really heavy sterilizing bombardments has ended, but the Earth is still getting hit by comets and chondritic asteroids, and so it's begun to build and condensed out its first ocean. So we're looking at right at the end of the Hadean Eon, right at the point where the Earth is stabilized and settled down and there's no more stable sterilizing impacts to actually begin the process of formation of life in the Earth's oceans. So this is kind of a view from the surface of the Earth about four and a half billion years ago. It's a, essentially an ocean-covered world, the land is uninhabited, and the first life is just going to start emerging deep in the ocean environment. The moon is also probably a little bit closer to the Earth, as shown in this picture. The, the moon started out a little bit closer, and it's been slowly moving outwards from tidal evolution. Well, let's fast forward now to today. What are the properties of the sun right now today? Today, the sun is about 4.55 billion years old. It is a middle-aged main sequence star. It has a luminosity of one solar luminosity, a radius of one solar radius, and a temperature of 5779 degrees Kelvin. We're going to very, again, somewhat provincially define a solar luminosity and a solar radius as today's solar radius. It gets to be a little silly to talk about this later. We talk about, well, the radius of the sun is five solar radii, a hundred solar radii. Remember, that's the solar radius today, but I'm going to drop the word today for simplicity. 
Sun is about four and a half billion years old, and we can actually use in detailed calculations of what the nuclear fusion rate should be and the change in that fusion rate over time as the Sun's interior uh, evolves. We find that, a, that the Sun has used in round numbers approximately 50% of the core hydrogen that's available for fusion. So it's halfway through the fuel tank, right? The needle on the fuel tank is halfway between full and empty, four and a half billion years in. The sun is about 30% brighter than it was in the past, when it first alighted on the main sequence. So again, not surprisingly, as the sun has gotten brighter, the habitable zone has moved outwards, and it's gotten a little wider. And we see today, <coughs> the conservative habitable zone, in fact, has the inner edge of the habitable zone just inside the orbit of the Earth today, and the outer edge of the habitable zone is just starting to touch the orbit of Mars, where Mars makes its closest approach to the sun, where Mars has an elliptical orbit is shown here. So today the sun is fairly steadily shining. Again, the, the increase in brightness is very gentle. It's not something we're going to recognize on human timescales. It really is important on geological timescales. The Earth is in a nice, warm, habitable place. And indeed, this is what the surface of the Earth looks like today, and has looked like for most of human history. Now, there have been periods of glaciation of ice ages, so sometimes the Earth would look much more frozen than this, but we are essentially a, a warm, moist world. We have a lightweight nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere, moist air, liquid water oceans, abundant plant life, in fact, abundant life on just about every land surface that isn't completely frozen on the planet. Now again, this, the, the, there are details of climate on the Earth that have to do with long-term cycles. We talked earlier, for example, in the class about Milankovitch cycles, cycles of glaciation and the interglacial periods. So this is kind of an average of what, this Earth, what the Earth's surface looks like today. It's a very imminently habitable world. Nice, warm, moist, and comfortable. But is it always going to stay that way? The sun was fainter in the past and brighter in the present that if we simply extrapolate and use the physics of how we think the star, how we do in fact know that stars do work, and use the calculations of our best solar models, we expect that as the sun continues to age, continues to burn its hydrogen into helium, continues to accumulate inert helium in its core, it's going to continue this progress of getting steadily brighter and steadily hotter and growing slightly in radius as time goes on. So let's now move ahead to the next interesting milestone in the sun's evolution. It's still a main sequence star. It's burning through 50%, then 60% or so of its, of its hydrogen fuel. We're now going to go forward about 1.1 billion years from today, when the sun is about 5.6 billion years old. The best calculations show that at that point, the sun will be 10% brighter than it is today. 1L sun is about 1.1 solar luminosity. The sun is 1.1 solar luminosities. This extra solar energy makes the temperature on the Earth rise a bit and triggers what is known as a moist greenhouse effect. As a consequence, water tends to be now becoming less stable on the surface in liquid form. It begins to evaporate and you tend to get more and more water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas. As water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere begins to accumulate, it increases the greenhouse load. The greenhouse heating begins to cause the temperature of the Earth to rise. The additional greenhouse heating causing the temperature of the Earth to rise, the additional heat, 
causes more water evaporation, more water evaporation puts more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which causes the temperature to go up, which evaporates more water, and you can see you start to, start to get a runaway. You start to get the snowball rolling down the hill. So we've taken this quasi-stable atmosphere, fairly well-regulated climate today, but the extrasolar radiation has finally tipped it over the edge. It's gotten the atmosphere so warm that the regular water cycle, evaporation and precipitation cycle begins to break down as water vapor becomes much more easily, can be much more easily stay in the atmosphere rather than raining out. And we say at this point we begin what's called a moist greenhouse effect. Now you'll notice that the, the picture of the habitable zone, of course, here on our drawing over here to the right, has, as expected, as the sun gets brighter, the habitable zone moves out and it gets slightly wider. One of the ways to know what's going on here is that you'll notice that the, the Earth's orbit is now exactly coincident, or very closely coincident, with the inner edge of the Sun's habitable zone. And in some sense, that's kind of how the scientists who put together this picture of the conservative habitable zone defined it. They defined the inner edge of the habitable zone as where the, what the conditions would be to trigger a moist greenhouse effect on the Earth. What they do is a bit more complicated than that, but that basically is what the consequence of being at the inner edge of the, of the habitable zone there means. So what we see is essentially the habitable zone has moved out, so the Earth is just about to leave the habitable zone. It's about to find itself inside the inner radius of the habitable zone. What's going to happen during a moist greenhouse effect? Water is going to begin to evaporate into the atmosphere. The atmosphere becomes extremely moist and heavy and very warm. Those water molecules and water vapor make their way to the top of the Earth's atmosphere, where they now get exposed to ultraviolet radiation from this 10% brighter sun. That ultraviolet radiation striking a water molecule breaks the water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen. The oxygen, the O of the H2O, is fearsomely reactive stuff, and it reacts with everything else, with, reacts with something else around it and is taken out. But the hydrogen, the H2 of the H2O, is extremely light, and it's hot. And so as a consequence, it escapes from the Earth and is lost into space. So the water, once broken apart by this process called UV photolysis, basically becomes lost to the Earth. Its hydrogen is lost to space and its oxygen is lost up in, locked up in, 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 in oxidized molecules. This is the very same thing that happened to Venus a long time ago when Venus went through its atmospheric evolution. So what we're seeing happening here on the Earth 1.1 billion years from now, when the moist greenhouse effect is triggered, it, the same events that occurred in the past when Venus began its downward spiral into a runaway greenhouse effect. So we're going to begin the process of drying out the atmosphere. So even though we're dumping water vapor in, we also have a way now to remove water vapor from the Earth. So before, water would go up in the Earth and then precipitate back down into the oceans. And so the water would be cycling between liquid and vapor, but it would stay on the Earth. Now, with the atmosphere too hot to sustain liquid water very easily and lots of water vapor, we now have developed a water loss mechanism. The Earth is beginning to dry out as the water vapor, the hydrogen of the water, is lost into space. The other consequence of going into this phase is the global temperature will rise fairly dramatically. The atmosphere will be hot, moist, and heavy, and what this is probably going to mean is it's going to mean the end of large surface life, people, plants, etc. Now, this is not to say it's going to wipe out all life on the planet, because the oceans will still be large and largely intact, and deep underground, of course, life will be able to exist. So what's very likely going to happen a billion years from now is that the surface of the Earth will become uninhabitably hot,
and that the only remaining life will be deep in the, in the remaining oceans and deep underground. But even they don't have much time left. Well, they have a few billion years left, as it turns out. Go forward again in the future. The sun is still burning through its hydrogen. It hasn't burned it all up. Maybe it's now getting down to kind of burn through 80% or 90%. So the needle's starting to get below, you know, towards the empty zone on the tank. Nine billion years from now, nine billion, when the sun is nine billion years old, about three and a half billion years from today, it will be 40% brighter than it is today. The steady accumulation of inert helium in its core is changing the configuration. In response to that, the sun gets brighter and it gets hotter, just relentlessly and slowly through this whole period on the main sequence. When the temperature reaches, a, when, when the luminosity of the sun reaches about 40% brighter than it is today, all the oceans will have evaporated and we begin to trigger something called a runaway greenhouse effect. Remember that all the carbon dioxide that the Earth had in its original atmosphere is locked up in two big sinks, it's dissolved into ocean water, and it's locked up in crustal rocks, calcium carbonate, down in the crust of the Earth, down on the crust of the Earth, especially in the ocean basins. Well, first of all, as you begin to evaporate the oceans, you release the carbon dioxide that was dissolved in that water and return it into the atmosphere. Now you're dumping a huge amount of very high efficiency greenhouse gas into the Earth's atmosphere and the greenhouse effect begins to go into a complete runaway situation. The atmosphere gets hotter, the oceans evaporate faster, they release more carbon dioxide which makes the atmosphere faster and the whole thing just basically snowballs. But it gets worse. Because once you've gotten rid of the oceans, you expose those bare ocean basins to this searing heat of this steadily increasing hot, heavy atmosphere. And you begin to bake out the calcium carbonate, and carbon dioxide begins to be released from the crustal rocks. If you go out and pick out a piece of limestone, a chunk of calcium carbonate that comes from a marine sediment, and you burn it in a kiln called a lime kiln, you get quicklime, on the one hand is one product, a calcium compound, and released tremendous amounts of carbon dioxide. So the, the carbon dioxide is locked up in these rocks, and now when the temperature rises to the point we've evaporated the oceans, we're, we're baking the ocean basins, we release this huge reservoir of carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere, and the greenhouse effect basically runs away. At this point, the Earth becomes like Venus is today. A hot, heavy atmosphere, 90, 100 atmospheres of pressure on the base, car heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere, but it's a bone-dry carbon dioxide atmosphere because during that moist greenhouse effect, all the water vapor has been lost as the oceans have evaporated away and all the water is lost to space. We then, again, looking at our, our picture of the schematic of the solar system, I've drawn the habitable zone again as the green band, and I've recomputed it now for the sun being 40% brighter. L is equal to 1.4 L sun. We now see that the inner edge of the, of the habitable zone has moved well beyond the edge of the orbit of Earth, and the outer edge of the habitable zone is now beyond the outer extent of the elliptical orbit of Mars. So the Earth is now fully out of the habitable zone, and in fact, all life on this planet probably ends right at this point. At this point, the Earth has had all life in it. It be so hot on the surface, 700, 800 degrees Kelvin, hot, heavy carbon dioxide, Venus-like atmosphere. Nothing we understand of, of life on Earth could possibly survive under those conditions. Biochemistry breaks down. It just isn't going to be inhabitable anymore. But we just see an interesting effect. Mars is actually now fully occupying the habitable zone, despite its elliptical orbit. We know that Mars has a great deal of subsurface of water ice on it. We certainly have begun to detect the direct evidence of that, and the, the Mars rovers have found evidence of at least some f 
evidence of past water on the planet. We have good indications, which will be confirmed, we hope, by future space missions to Mars, that there is, in fact, a substantial reservoir of subsurface ice. It's where all the water condensed out of Mars's atmosphere when it, when it dried out and, and froze out. But now Mars finds itself comfortably inside of the habitable zone of this nine billion year old sun. So maybe Mars will actually become briefly habitable during this period. Now there's a lot of challenges in that. Mars is a small planet, it's got very little atmosphere. So once the ices begin to melt, they build up the, the water, goes directly into vapor, will begin to build up a fairly heavy moist atmosphere. Maybe a greenhouse effect will kick in, the pressure will go up, and maybe liquid water will once again be stable on the surface of Mars. It doesn't have a lot of time to do this because the sun is nine billion years old. It's only got about a billion or so years left of hydrogen burning. But maybe, remember, life emerged on Earth about a hundred million years after the Earth stabilized. Maybe Mars will stabilize. Who knows? Maybe life will actually finally get its chance to emerge on Mars long after life on the Earth has ended. We don't know this for sure, but it might become a new haven for life in our solar system. In fact, if there's any people or other evolved creatures who descended from us, who escaped from the slowly dying Earth, Mars may be one of the most obvious next havens to go to. True, three billion years is, doesn't sound like a lot of time in cosmic terms, but in terms of human species years, or any species years, three billion years is practically forever. So the Earth becomes like Venus today, but maybe Mars will actually become a habitable place. So maybe, even though we may have ended life on Earth, Maybe it isn't curtains for life on, on, on Mars, or life in the solar system in general. So, again, stepping back to this view of what would the Earth look like, since that's our home, very likely three and a half billion years ago, this is the view of the surface of Earth. It is a hot, dense carbon dioxide atmosphere, temperature 7,800 degrees Kelvin. In short, the Earth looks like what we think the surface of Venus looks like today. Where does it go? It doesn't just stop with the death of all life on Earth. The sun has still got a ways to go. It's only nine billion years old. It's got two billion years of evolution left in it. Those two billion years are when the sun is going to burn the last of the hydrogen in its core into helium. The helium is slowly accumulating in the core, building up this inert helium core, slowly shouldering the hydrogen fusion zone further and further to the outer parts of the core, but it's still reasonably stable. When the sun is 11 billion years old, and that's the best estimate now from the best models, is that when you take into account the composition of the sun, the mass of the sun, the round number of 10 billion we've been slinging around is just an approximation. A detailed calculation for the sun suggests that its main sequence lifetime is about 11 billion years. When it reaches 11 billion years, it burns that last few bits of core hydrogen, and hydrogen fusion in the core stops. This large inert helium core begins to contract and heat up, and the hydrogen fusion moves into a thin shell surrounding this slowly inert, contracting heating core. Now, as we mentioned before in talking about stellar evolution, he, hydrogen core burning, or any kind of core burning, core fusion, is stable. But shell fusion is not stable. It's unstable. It produces more energy than the star can reasonably get rid of easily. Now, in the taste of the sun, this, insta this sort of... Uh, extra burning starts out, extra fusion starts out really slow. But the simple fact remains is the sun has run out of core hydrogen fusion. It has to leave the main sequence. It is now no longer a main sequence star because main sequence stars by definition are hydrogen fusion in their cores. At the moment of hydrogen core exhaustion, the luminosity of the sun is 
220% brighter than it is today, 2.21 solar luminosities. Its radius is about 1.6 solar radii today, and it's a little bit cooler. It's begun to swell up a little bit, and it's gotten a little bit cooler. It's now 5,700 degrees Kelvin. So it's peaked out in temperature sometime before, and it's now begun a cooling track on the surface, even though the interior is extremely hot. This helium core begins to contract, and the sun begins to leave the main sequence, and it begins to become a red giant. Now, the previous evolution of the sun, the main sequence phase, lasted about 11 billion years. The subsequent evolution is going to happen a lot faster. And the basic next step is going to take approximately 1.3 billion years to play out between the moment that the sun leaves the main sequence after hydrogen core exhaustion to the point that it grows into its maximum size as a red giant. There's two phases <coughs> to the steady growth from a from hydrogen core exhaustion into a red giant. The first 700 million years, 0.7 billion years of the, the growth phase occurs at near constant luminosity. The sun is going to be nearly flat in luminosity at 2.2 solar luminosities. So all the extra energy that's being made by hydrogen shell fusion is going to go not into making the sun shine brighter, but go into work and actually make the sun begin to grow in size. And it begins to slowly swell up from about 1.6 solar radii up to 2.3 solar radii. At the end of this, during the same time as it's swelling up to keep the same luminosity, it's going to have to get slightly cooler, and the temperature is going to drop from about 5,500 degrees Kelvin at hydrogen core exhaustion to about 4,900 degrees Kelvin. So over the course of about 700 million years, the sun's going to blow up in size from one and a half to about two and change solar radii, and its temperature is going to drop from 5,700 to 4,900 degrees Kelvin. Now, at 40, when it reaches 4,900 degrees Kelvin in its outer envelope, the rules change on the outer envelope. The way in which the uh, cool envelope transports energy from the inside to the outside changes, becomes convective. And when it becomes convective, all of a sudden, the sun will begin a vertical evolution in the HR diagram. It will begin to very rapidly swell up in size with very little change in temperature. It will continue to drop in temperature, but now the temperature decline will be very small, but it will rocket up in luminosity over the course of about 600 million years. It will swell from 2.3 solar radii to 166 solar radii, and it will grow in luminosity from 2.2 solar luminosities to 2350 solar luminosities. So it will become nearly a thousand times brighter and become not quite, but close to about a hundred times bigger. And we say that the sun has begun to ascend the red giant branch. It's beginning to grow into a red giant star. Now all this growth is putting an awful lot of energy into the outer envelope, and the envelope is becoming big and distended. As it becomes big and distended, the gravity at the outer surface of this distended atmosphere becomes weaker, and the sun is no longer able to hold on to a lot of its outer envelope gas as well as it could when it was smaller. And so what begins during the same period of ascent of the red giant branch is the beginning of a very strong solar wind that begins to take mass away from the sun. During the course of the ascent to the red giant branch, the best estimates we have so far is the sun will lose something between 20 and 30 percent of its total mass right now. Now, if you, this is a slow; it's not exploding. It's going boom, but it's just going to slowly shed it off over the course of about a billion years. So it's a very gentle wind, 
But what happens is the planets, Venus, Earth, Mercury, Mars, everybody else out, sees the mass of the central star getting weaker. That means the gravity that's holding them in their orbits is getting weaker. And so in response, because the change in the mass is very slow compared to the time of an orbit, is the planets slowly move outwards in response. So as the sun loses mass slowly, on a time scale long compared to the time to complete an orbit for a typical planet, the planet will respond to that change in mass by moving outwards. By the time the sun reaches the top of the red giant branch, when it's lost 28% of its mass, Venus will have moved from its current orbit out to 1 AU, out to the orbit of where the Earth is. The Earth, meanwhile, will have moved out to the orbit of, of Mars. Similarly, Mercury will move out, Mars will move out. In fact, the whole solar system will all begin to move steadily away from the sun as the sun begins to lose mass. And the slow effect is very important because what it means is as the sun is growing and growing into this, in this great big distended red giant, the planets are kind of moving out in front of it. And this has implications, how fast you lose mass and how much mass you lose, for whether those planets are going to be able to keep, move, keep ahead of the growing sun and avoid being swallowed. Well, what we find is when we get down to the sun is in an age of about 12.23 billion years. We really do know these numbers to about this precision now. The sun maxes out in its growth. It reaches the top of the red giant branch. And in the process of growing there, Venus, Earth, and Mars manage to get out ahead of the sun. But Mercury, pff, Mercury's toast. Mercury gets swallowed somewhere in this process. So we're down one planet, down to seven planets now. At the top of the red giant branch, the sun is 2,350 times the luminosity of the present day sun. It's 166 solar radii in extent. That's 0.775 AU. That's almost out to the current day orbit of Venus. The temperature has dropped to 3,100 degrees Kelvin. The sun is now and gone from an, a G2 main sequence star to an M0 giant star. It appears in the sky as a bright red giant, almost 2,300 times brighter than it appears in the sky today. The habitable zone depends upon temperature, as we uh, luminosity, excuse me, of the sun, and so not surprisingly, the habitable zone for the Earth has moved way out past the inner solar system. In fact, you worked a homework problem on this just a couple weeks ago. That's where I got those numbers. The habitable zone, when the sun has reached the top of the red giant branch, is all the way out past Neptune and Pluto and out into the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt is composed of ice balls and, and volatile gases and sort of little, little icy conglomerates. It's very likely that when the habitable zone moves out into that phase during the period of the sun ascending the red giant branch, that almost all the Kuiper Belt objects will basically be evaporated and blown away. They will simply volatilize their ices and be blown away. So it probably could look really spectacular if you were out there to look at it. Why does the growth stop? Why doesn't it just keep growing bigger and bigger? The reason is because of that helium core, which is collapsing and heating and collapsing and heating. What arrests the growth of the sun into a red giant is that the temperature in the helium core finally reaches a temperature of 600 million degrees Kelvin. When that occurs, helium fusion can begin, helium fusing into carbon and oxygen in the core. We now have gone from an unstable shell burning phase of hydrogen, burning in a hydrogen fusing in a shell around an inert helium core to stable core fusion, although this time it's helium fusion into carbon and oxygen, not hydrogen fusion into helium. Core fusion is stable. So the sun, going through this sort of lively old age of 
swelling into a red giant, suddenly gets a reprieve. It gets a little bit of a brief retirement because it now suddenly goes into a stable burning phase, a helium burning phase, a helium fusion phase deep in its core. And the sun becomes, is able to settle down and rearrange its structure in response to suddenly going from unstable shell fusion to stable core fusion. And it becomes what we call a horizontal branch star. Now, if we were to go to the Earth during this top of the red giant branch phase, this is probably what the view from the Earth would look like. The Sun would be immense. It would fill the same volume as seen by the orbit of, of Venus. So, therefore, the sun, disk of the Sun would be almost 90 degrees across on the sky. It would be a big, bright, bright red, glaring ball filling most of the view in the sky. The Earth's surface would be in, extremely uninhabitable. The basic surface temperature is only a f about 1,000 degrees Kelvin, less than the temperature of the surface of the red giant sun. You did the calculation of the temperature of the sun for the homework problem last week. It's got a surface temperature of nearly 2,000 degrees Kelvin. That's about the temperature you need to melt sand. So it's going to be a completely flattened out, soft rock, gooey, any the traces of humanity and everything else that's lived there will long since have been baked off. The atmosphere will be gone. It'll basically be a baked, airless world. Okay, so the Earth is toast. That's it. It's history. It's over with. But the sun's still got a ways to go, as does the rest of the solar system. Now, you notice that on this particular picture now, looking back at our schematic of the solar system, the habitable zone is gone. In fact, the habitable zone's way out in the outer solar system at this point. It's off the picture, off the screen. After helium core ignition, the sun settles back down into a semi-stable state, where it's now fusing helium into carbon and oxygen in the core, and there's a thin shell of hydrogen fusion into helium just outside of that. But most of the energy comes from helium fusion in the core. The sun actually shrinks dramatically. Right Before it was 166 solar radii, it was 2,000 solar luminosities. When helium ignites in the core, the sun actually settles back down into a stable configuration. It's still it's brighter than it was before. It's, it's 41 solar luminosities now, so it's brighter than it is today, but it's much fainter. It's about a factor of 50 fainter than it was up on top of the red giant branch. It's smaller. It's about 9.5 solar radii, down from the 166 at the top of the red giant branch, and it's a bit warmer. It's contracted. It's heated up. It's now kind of a kind of a case. Uh, it's 4,700 Kelvin, so it's kind of a case star now, kind of a, sort of a yellow-orange color rather than yellow. As a consequence, because the solar luminosity has dropped so dramatically, about a factor of 50, the habitable zone is now going to move back in from the deep outer reaches of the solar system and is now going to end up about where Jupiter is now. Because remember, Jupiter, like all the other planets, has moved out in response to the mass loss during the giant branch phase. Jupiter's now moved from about 5 AU out to about 7 AU and finds itself right smack in the middle of the habitable zone. Now, the first thing you think is, well, some people thought, like, wow, cool. Jupiter's now out in the habitable zone, therefore Europa and all those moons are also in the habitable zone. This is Europa's chance to shine. And you're right. If Europa still had any water, water would probably be able to be liquid on the surface of Europa, and the vast oceans would be exposed to the sky. The problem is, to get to this phase, the sun had to first go through about a billion years of red giant phase. And that would have probably completely baked all the water off of Europa and all the other moons, and would probably have blown a lot of the icy moons away. So in fact, they're long since uninhabitable. Even though the sun has technically got a habitable zone, the phases that went on before that were utterly inhospitable. 
and probably actually destroyed a lot of the liquid water and other volatiles on this moon. So, nice idea, but it isn't going to work. Now, helium fusion into carbon and oxygen is much, much less efficient nucleus for nucleus than hydrogen fusion into helium. Hydrogen fusion into helium is the most efficient form of energy generation that, there's, that is known in, in fusion. Helium is much, much less efficient, about 100 times less efficient. So as a consequence, even though the mass of fuel in the core is the same in the helium burning phase as in the hydrogen fusion phase, well, it took 10 billion years to burn through all the hydrogen because helium produces so much less energy per nuclear reaction, it burns through all of its helium fuel in something around 100 million years. So the stable phase of the sun settling down as a horizontal branch star, burning helium into, into carbon and oxygen, fusing, excuse me, fusing helium into carbon and oxygen in the core. We use the word burning and fusing. Astronomers use burning and fusing interchangeably, so excuse me when I slip into that, just sort of astronomer speak there. Helium fusion into carbon and oxygen is inefficient and only can last for 100 million years before you exhaust all of your energy. Basically, it's too little energy. The way to think about it is that going from hydrogen fusion to helium fusion is like running your car on high-test jet fuel to running your car on yak butter. You can do it, but it takes an awful lot to get any go out of it. So what happens at the end of the 100 million years of helium fusion? Well, just like we saw in the main sequence, helium fusion is building up carbon and oxygen. The carbon and oxygen builds up in the core. As the carbon and oxygen builds up in the core, the sun, in this case the horizontal branch sun, gets steadily brighter and steadily hotter. It begins to recapitulate some of that near end of main sequence evolution, but it does so as a star that is substantially bigger in radius, substantially more luminous, if a bit cooler. And it does so much, much faster than the 10 billion years we saw in the main sequence. So this is a, a fanciful view of what the Earth's surface might look like during the horizontal branch phase. The Earth is now completely airless. It's been just completely scrubbed clean and baked off completely during the red giant phase. It has no more atmosphere, so the sky is black. The sun is now 9.5 times bigger than it was today, and the Earth has moved out a little bit, so when you take those two things into effect, the sun is probably about 4 or 5 degrees across in the sky. So you would need to hold up your palm to be able to blot out the disk of the sun in the horizontal branch phase if you were standing here upon this baked Earth. The surface of the Earth looks like basically a really big version of Mercury, the way to think about it. It's airless. It's pretty hot. The, the equilibrium temperature of the Earth is going to be pretty warm here because the sun is fairly bright and we're fairly close to it. We're still, you know, 1.4 AUs away and the sun is 41 times more luminous, which is more than warm enough for liquid water to exist. In fact, liquid water vapor, but there's no water left to be liquid on the planet. It's com completely baked and dried out. So this is a picture now of the inner solar system at the time of helium core exhaustion. So we've, the sun is now 12.344 billion years old. It's been burning, fusing helium into carbon and oxygen in its core for 100 million years, and it finally reaches the point where it's about to run out of helium. The proportions here are about right. The sun has been slowly growing in size and luminosity as it begins to accumulate carbon and oxygen ash in the core. So it begins to shoulder these helium-burning and hydrogen-burning shells out around that inert carbon core. Venus, Earth, and Mars are still here. Mercury, of course, has long since been evaporated by the red giant sun. And this is where the rules, the, the, the game is about to change once again. This brief retirement, this brief 100 million year period where the solar system was relatively calm is about to come to an end. 
just like we saw when we looked at the red giant phase that began at the end of hydrogen core exhaustion. When helium core exhaustion occurs much faster, we're going to see a dramatic change back into a red giant phase. And it's going to happen a lot quicker. When helium runs out in the core, the sun begins to swell up into a red giant. It begins to grow in size and grow dramatically in luminosity. And it becomes what we call an asymptotic giant branch star. Asymptotic because this time the growth is going to be a little bit more luminous than the red giant phase, and it's going to occur with the sun a little bit hotter. Deep inside, this process is also going to happen very, very rapidly, whereas it took about a billion, 1.3 billion years for the sun to go from hydrogen core exhaustion to the top of the red giant branch. Now the sun is going to go from helium core exhaustion to the top of the asymptotic giant branch in 20 million years. It's a very rapid process in cosmological terms. Deep inside the sun at this point, we have a contracting carbon-oxygen core. It's surrounded by high helium and then hydrogen fusion shells. Shell fusion is fundamentally unstable. Not unstable in kaboom unstable. Unstable in the sense that it doesn't run at a simple steady pace. It's a furnace with its thermostat broken. If you've ever been in a house with a, with a broken thermostat, it's really crazy. It's like the furnace says, mmm, cold, turn on, and it turns on full blast, and it just blasts hot air out, and then the thermostat goes and says, oh, it's a little too hot in here, and it shuts the furnace off completely. So you get heat, burn, burn, burn. Oh, no, stop now. Okay, we're not going to do anything for a while. Okay, now it's getting cold. Okay, i got to turn on again. Burn, burn like crazy, burn like crazy, and I'm kidding, stop. So you don't get this steady burning, but you get these sort of pulses of tremendous amount of burning, shutting off. Tremendous amount of burning and shutting down. Tremendous amount of burning and shutting down. It goes on and off. Actually, it doesn't really shut down, but it just goes into a low state. High state, low state. High and low, high and low. Well, if you've got a ton of energy blowing out, and then it kind of backs off, and then a ton of energy backing out and coming back off, you're pulsing the bottom of the envelope of the star from inside. You're pushing on it. You're dumping a bunch of energy. It says, make up your mind. You're dumping energy in me, and then you're not. That kind of unstable pulsation will begin to drive instabilities in the shell. And this instability in the shell is going to begin to derive a tremendous stellar wind. Mass loss is going to pick back up where it started again. There was no mass loss going on during the horizontal branch phase as the sun settled down. But once the unstable pulsations begin, the mass loss begins again in earnest, and the atmosphere, the, the envelope, begins to blow off. If we look at asymptotic giant branch stars, the mass of the sun elsewhere in our galaxy, we see a red giant at the middle, but we see shell after shell of surrounding junk that are bits of the atmosphere, bits of the envelope, that are being blown off by these successive thermal pulsations that rack their way through the outer envelope of the star. At this point, the sun is basically dying. It's going to go through its death over a period of about 20 plus million years. So it enters this phase we refer to as a thermally pulsing asymptotic giant branch phase. And here's our schematic of the solar system. Mass loss is occurring, but again that mass loss, even though it's rapid in cosmical terms, it's still actually slow compared to the orbit times of the planets. So the planets move out in response to the, to the shrinking mass of the sun. Now, one of the points of controversy right now among researchers is understanding how much that rate of mass loss is during the thermally pulsing AGB phase and how big the sun grows during some of these pulses. The pulses are literally, the sun is breathing in and out. It pulses in and pulses out. So as shown on the screen here, this yellow dashed line is the outer limit of maximum pulsations and then the inner red ball is kind of the, where it relaxes back down between pulses. 
Some calculations have those pulses even bigger. So part of the argument is, are the pulsations big enough and the mass lost fast enough that Venus and the Earth can be moved out of the way of this steadily growing asymptotic giant branch sun? Some models suggest they can, certainly the ones I referenced do, but others have suggested that maybe Venus or maybe even the Earth will eventually get swallowed by the asymptotic giant branch sun. I would say if I wanted to guess at consensus now, and so far there is consensus in the field, Venus is kind of on the line whether it's going to survive or not, but I think, in fact, it's fairly likely that the Earth, Mars, and everything beyond that probably will survive the, asymptotic, the pulsating asymptotic giant branch phase. So this is a phase where the Sun is now beginning to come apart, slowly. It's not exploding, it's just sort of beginning to sort of slowly dismantle its envelope. Each successive pulse gets stronger and stronger, Eventually, it gets one last big pulse and blows off the rest of its atmosphere. And this occurs fairly rapidly in a cosmological sense. It happens over the course of a couple thousand years. When this last pulse occurs, the last of the envelope is lifted off and the hot carbon-oxygen core beneath is, un is unveiled. The carbon-oxygen core never gets hot enough to go on to the next fusion cycle, to go on to the next carbon fusion cycle. So it's reached the end of the road. There's no more nuclear energy that it can tap, and it will stay forever a hot carbon-oxygen core, which can do nothing but simply cool off. This core is extremely hot when it's unveiled. It's hundreds of thousands of degrees Kelvin in temperature. Bodies with th temperatures of 100,000 degrees Kelvin produce copious amounts of ultraviolet radiation. This has two consequences of interest to us. The first of these is that as the core is unveiled and this ultraviolet radiation pours out into what's left of the solar system, it will effectively sterilize every single solid surface within the solar system. It will basically kill everything that's on a surface. So ultraviolet radiation we know is very damaging to life. In this case, it's going to flood the solar system with ultraviolet radiation, sterilize it. But the second thing it's going to do is less deadly and much more spectacular. The ultraviolet radiation crashing into the envelope gas ionizes it and lights it up, causes it to fluoresce. And so the sun, if you will, briefly flowers as a bright, beautiful planetary nebula. Planetary nebulae are some of the most beautiful objects in the night sky. Now again, there's a little controversy within the observational community about where this actually occurs. There are some arguments which are pretty good, but they're difficult to understand whether they're con convincing in the end that there's a minimum mass that a star has to have in order to form a white dwarf, in order to form a planetary nebula around this sort of growing white dwarf core that's unveiled. The argument has to do with whether or not that carbon-oxygen core cools off faster than that envelope becomes transparent and can, can go through this brief flowering as a planetary nebula. And the numbers vary between you have to be bigger than 0.9 times the mass of the sun or you have to be bigger than about 1.1, 1.2 times the mass of the sun. So you can see this, the Earth, and that's mass, by the way, that's mass at birth, not mass at this phase, because mass loss has been going on all the time. So the sun is right on the line between these two extreme limits. Now, personally, I'd really like to think that after all this fuss and violence of the last few years of the sun's existence, that it will actually sort of get that last little reward to sort of flower as a planetary nebula. It'd be great. But right now, we really don't know if that's the outcome or not. But you know, for the sake of argument today, we'll say that this is sort of the sun's last gasp in the sky. This beautiful planetary nebula, down here in the center of this planetary nebula, is the hot blue carbon-oxygen core that's left behind from the nuclear fusion core that used to power the sun. 
When the gas of the envelope all disperses and the planetary nebula fades away after a few thousand years, what's left behind is that carbon-oxygen core. Best calculations, depending upon mass loss and various calculations of the structure of the sun, suggest that our sun will end up with about a 0.54 solar mass carbon-oxygen core. It's about a half of its current mass. So it will lose half of its mass to space, and the other half of the mass will be locked away as this carbon-oxygen white dwarf. This carbon-oxygen white dwarf, the carbon-oxygen core, excuse me, will continue to collapse, continue to shrink, but now, as it shrinks, it eventually reaches the size of the Earth. When it reaches the size of the Earth, a new form of pressure comes into play called electron degeneracy pressure. That electron degeneracy pressure halts the collapse of gravity, and the core settles down to becoming a white dwarf with half the mass of the Sun, but the radius of the Earth. It still sits there in the center of our solar system, but now it's tiny, hot, and slowly fading away. There's no more nuclear fusion. There's no more sources of energy. It can only shine because of its residual internal heat, and as it loses that heat, there's nothing to replace it, and it fades away. The Earth, after all that mass loss, ends up about 1.85 astronomical units away from this white dwarf. So the final state of the Earth is a cold, airless, lifeless world circling around a fading white dwarf star. So this cartoon picture of a white dwarf seen in the distance from a frozen Earth is what your view would look out like the window, if you had a window, 8 billion years from today. The white dwarf will slowly fade into the long night, and the Earth will be there, cold and frozen and lifeless for the rest of the history of the universe. Now, that all sounds fairly grim, but what about us? What's the fate of human beings? The normal course of the sun's evolution will render the Earth uninhabitable about 1 billion years from now. If humans are still around, we would have to move out and move further out in the solar system. We know enough now about the evolutionary course of stars to predict when this is going to occur and see it coming and plan for it if we decide to plan on long timescales. However, it's kind of a silly question to ask in some ways if you make the following consideration. One billion years is a very, very long time, and there's two possible timescales that might make this whole idea of this being a big danger to Earth, or at least life, if not life on Earth, certainly life, us, <laughs> our lives, because one billion years is a long, long time. Compare, for example, one billion years to the modest interstellar colonization scales we've been talking about in the last couple of lectures. A reasonably technologically advanced civilization can colonize the entire galaxy in 10 to 100 million years. That's a lot shorter time scale than this one billion years to the Earth just starting to become uninhabitable because of the brightening of the sun. So maybe the way out of it for life on Earth, meaning us, is that we would plan on leaving the Earth, and maybe we would survive long enough and develop the technology to leave the Earth and colonize another planet, or maybe colonize a whole section of the nearby galaxy. Or not. Maybe we never figure out how to do this. Maybe instead of leaving the Earth, we go elsewhere in our solar system. We buy ourselves a little time. You know, terraform Mars or something like that. Yeah, yeah, Mars is small, doesn't have a lot of gravity. But if you terraform it, it'll last just long enough. right? How long is long enough? right? Human, humanity as a species has only been around for 100,000 years. So if you can only make Mars a stable and habitable planet for one or two million years, that's maybe long enough to move on to the next stage. The other thing to remember about a billion years, and this is, again, we sort of view the world through our own eyes, is we think, oh, a billion years, wow, that's not much on a cosmic time scale. Again, the human species has only been around for about 100,000 years in the fossil record. The typical lifetimes for any species of any kind is measured in millions of years. 
So a billion years is long compared to the typical lifetime of species on this planet. This means that it may not be about people, it may not be about us when the Earth starts to become uninhabitable a billion years from now. It may be whoever we or some other creature on this planet has evolved into. So the question about what the habitability of the Earth is going to be like on long term really is perhaps a much shorter term question than the longer term question of what's going to happen to the Sun. Ultimately though, the simple answer is, is that life cannot last forever in a single place. Its home star, the source of all the energy it needs for life, will eventually go out and will eventually render its solar system uninhabitable. And that's the lesson of life in the solar system and life elsewhere in the galaxy around stars is it only lasts a little while. Thank you all.